0: As we come to this final chapter, it has been a great time uh, studying together. There's basically this theme of hope, Peter tells them, in the midst of suffering. This is written about the year 61, 60 A.D., don't know exact year. We know that Peter in two years will be executed by Nero. And as he is crucified, he will say, I'm not worthy to die as Christ. Crucify me upside down. And as he writes to the church now in present-day Turkey, Asia Minor, there's like 10 churches he, he mentions. And they're taking this letter, and they're starting to suffer now. And it reminds them but that's all right. You still have got hope. They say that you can live four weeks without food. I think I could go about six or seven, but about four. You can live six days without water. You can go four minutes without oxygen before brain damage. But you can't live a moment without hope. Faith is what you trust. You pull the trigger of faith. Hope is what you are living for. And our hope, Peter reminds us a quick survey. In the first chapter he said how you can have joy in tough times. Because our hope is not in technology. We don't hope that we're going to somehow discover something new. Our hope is not in any person. Hey, you putting your hope in me, you're going to be disappointed real fast. Our hope is in the living Savior, Christ, he says. And while you're going through these trials, and they can't understand this, we thought Christ was coming back. They're starting to die for what you were doing right now. I don't mean they got a bad day or somebody was mean to them. They're starting to be killed for what you were doing right now because Rome was considering them treasonous. And they're saying, what's going on? And he says, you have a hope. Second chapter, remember, we saw that you can have a life of sanity in a crazy culture. You think L.A. is nuts. You should have seen Rome in the first century. And he says to them, the sanity that you can have is called holiness. And holiness is not self-righteousness. That's gag. Holiness simply means this risen Christ. Pentecost Sunday today, the verse that is the exact opposite of Pentecost is when someone says, what would Jesus do? Because it's not about trying to imitate Jesus. You believe something much more dangerous and wild. That now it's not... What would Jesus do? What is the same Jesus who walked those roads of Palestine trying to do now through us by the spirit of God? You don't try to come in here and imitate Jesus. You can never do that. It's scary. You say, Lord, you take over my life. The third chapter we saw that the hope is in one of the most hopeless places. Our families. You will always have your highest highs and your lowest lows with your family. And sometimes it seems so hopeless. And we found out through this word hypotasso, remember, learning to submit and love to each other. Last week we saw, how do you have hope at the end of the age when things are going to get crazy? The end of all things is at hand, remember Peter said. You have hope by prayer, you breathe in the Spirit of God, and you start loving these people around you. You don't need to flip out. God's totally in control. You and I do not need to save the world. That's God's responsibility. You and I do not need to change another person. That's the Holy Spirit's responsibility. You and I need to be faithful to God and to love each other. Amen? Amen. And when we do that, God starts to change things. Let's take a look at this chapter. Turn with me over to uh, back to the fifth chapter on page 986. And Peter is going to use the famous phrase, Paul's famous word. Two words, in Christ, in Christ. And if you want to make a difference in this world, you are leaving behind an impact. Whether it's for good or bad is up to us. And the way to make an impact in a lonely world, he says, is three ways. By having Christ-like leadership. You are a leader of your little world. You surely are. And how you, if you have servant leadership or not, make an impact by Christ-like spiritual struggle. Casting out demons is not what we are called to do. We are called to be able to plant the good news of the Holy Spirit. And finally, Christ-like city conquering. Rome will change because of how they live. Well, if you look at here in verse 1 through 5, he talks about elders. The Greek word presbyteros, that's what a Presbyterian is. It's an elder-run government. And he talks about how we are to set this example. So Let's read verses 1 through 5 together. Now as an elder myself, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you to tend the flock of God that is in your charge, exercising the oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you do it, not for sordid gain, but eagerly. Do not lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will win the crown of glory that never fades away. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. And all of you must clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, notice there in verse 1 this is Peter. This is the one who is the head of the church in Jerusalem. This is the one of whom Jesus himself said, Thou art Petros, and upon this Petra I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Peter, does he call himself an apostle? No, what does he call himself there? As a fellow elder, a presbruderoy, he said just like you. He's not elevating himself at all the humbleness in Peter. And notice what he says as a witness to the resurrection of Christ? Nah. no. To the glory of Christ, he and James and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration when Elijah and Moses appeared. No. To the sufferings of Christ. Do you remember that night that Jesus suffered what happened to Peter? Peter to whom God alone had revealed when Jesus said at Caesarea Philippi, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, I know you. You didn't come up with this on your own. (laughs) My Father in heaven has revealed this to you, and blessed are you, Simon. He knew the identity of Christ. And that night when Jesus said, remember, Jesus rarely asked for help. He said to them that night, I need you. Stay with me. Peter said, I will die for you. And Jesus said, no, you won't. That night, Peter denied that he knew him three times. They said, aren't you a Galilean? And he said, no, I'm not. The servant girl, John, says, tells us Malchus, the slave's brother, said, didn't I see you with him? He said, no. And a third time they said, aren't you a follower of Jesus? And Peter said, damn it, no. He swore and said, I don't know the man. The cock crows and he weeps bitterly. And he catches Jesus' eye standing there being tried by Caiaphas. And and he left. Now you see what Peter's saying, a witness to the sufferings of Christ. He said, I blew it that night. I knew better. And I walked away. But Jesus came and found me. And he restored me. And the best way that you can lead as a servant leader is by telling people not how neat you are or how great you are, but how it is God we look to. And the more you can share, and you don't glorify your sin. Why is it that Christians are always going, Oh, you thought you were a sinner. I'm a better sinner than that. I was really hammered. You should have seen me. I was drunker than you. You know, what is with that? You don't glorify being a jerk. But no, I'm talking about when you fail, when you do a face plant and you stumble. He said, yeah, Christ picked me up as a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Wow, we're never going to get through this. Okay, as uh a... We're going to move ahead here. In the same way that you're in a charge, exercise overseeing them. Not for shameful gain, sordid gain. I like how RSV puts this. Don't lord it over those, but be examples. Calvin says here, the three temptations of any leader. Sloth, compulsion for gain, and lust for power. As a pastor or as an elder or a deacon, and you are, remember, an elder to your world. You don't do it because you can make money at it. There's nothing a the matter with making money. God is not into poverty or he wouldn't tell you and I to go alleviate it. If God was into poor people, he wouldn't say of uh, the, keeping them poor. He'd say, well, that's the way it goes. You and I are to share our money, our wealth with them. But when you use the church, be very, very careful. I want to tell you, you know the old line about church history? It started as a fellowship in Antioch. It went to Greece and became a philosophy, went to Rome and became an institution, went to Europe and became a culture, came to America and became a business. Be very careful with that. The moment that the church has financial needs, I don't mind being paid at all. You have need to be paid in your job. But the moment I use you for money and the moment as a – I know people that attend this church only for business connections – be very careful with that. Because we are here not to use the church, but to serve the church. And so he comes along and he says, don't, and slothfulness, lazy. Hey, you, your world, God, you are a prophet, priest, and king to your family, your friends, your world. And you're not supposed to be lazy. Now, it doesn't mean that you overwork yourself. But God never admires laziness. There's a difference between waiting on the Lord and letting the Lord wait on you. You know, that's why you didn't just lay in bed this morning and order eggs benedict from Jesus. Because he'll say, get your fanny out of bed and get to church. And God calls us to be able to reach out and to serve in that way. And Peter's telling them, this is how you oversee. And why do you do that? From when the chief shepherd, verse 4, when he appears, that word parousia, means like when a king is coming. When Obama landed last week down here at the VA hospital and they shut down everything, Because the chopper landed over there. That was the perugia of your president. That was the appearing. And when Christ comes back, and I believe at that time the church will rise to meet him, to go out to greet him, and to come back to this world. We're talking about last week, the end times. Will Christ come back before tribulation or after? If God ever asks you, vote for pre-tribulation. In fact, do write-in ballots. That's what we want. But I don't think so. I hope so. Because they went through the exodus, they went through the exile, it's going to get really tough. But when we return, when Christ returns, what do you get if you are faithful? Stephanos. It means a crown. When they won the Olympics, you know what they got? They got a little wreath crown. When a Roman commander or general was successful in fighting and they came back to Rome with a parade, they had a Stephanos, a crown. Last summer, I went riding a bike for the first time in a long time. And I want to. how can something so fun hurt so bad? (laughs) How your legs are burning, your lungs are burning. These crazy people on the Tour de France, why in the world do they do that? So they can get a little yellow jersey. (laughs) Because that jersey means something. They don't just hand that out. Why do they work so hard at golf and practicing, you know, drive for show and putt for dough so they can win the Masters, so they can put on that ugly green blazer? (laughs) Why do you go out there and have your face knocked off all the time in the NFL for 20 games now with preseason and post, so you can hold up a Crystal Vince Lombardi trophy? Why are hockey players checking each other so much? They have concave faces, so they can hold something called the Stanley Cup? You and I, why do we do what we do? Because someday, fact, more fact than your fanny sitting in those pews or sitting downtown and right now in Union, that when Christ physically comes back, those that have been faithful, he will say, well done, well done. And the glory that you will receive, not that God will get, oh, he's already got a lot of that. But the glory that you or I receive, Peter is saying, so outweighs anything else so outweighs it. And so he says, therefore, oversee the flock. Don't get off track. Paul will later say, writing his last letter in 2 Timothy, before he is executed on death row, he says, remember, Timothy, that a soldier does not get entangled in civilian pursuits. What does he mean? A soldier, and so many that we pray for, that are right now in Iraq or Afghanistan, around the world, as they, you leave your family, you leave your friends, you leave your security, you go to somewhere where they're trying to kill you. And why do you do that hardship? It's for a greater call. He says, as a soldier, you're engaged with this world, yes. You're not removed from it, hiding from it. You abstain from the world's petty gains, but you sustain yourself. By not being entangled. We're not disconnected from the world. This isn't Fortress Bel Air where we try to hide from this city. No. This is where we come and we're restored. This is base camp. We get our marching orders. We're loved. We worship God. We care for each other. And then we get out of here. Get out of here and into the city. But you don't get entangled on the games of the deck of the damned. They are going down. And the games they play, you don't play. Because you're not going down with them if you're in Cristo, in Christ. So you love them, sure. You work with them, of course. You play with them. You hang where they hang. You go into all the parties, into the bars, into the restaurants, into all the sporting events. You go to the films, into the studios where they're at. But you go in a different way, he is saying. And God, when Christ returns, remember, God resists the proud, he says. But he gives grace to the humble. What is pride? Pride is having an inaccurate view of yourself. Your self-concept is what, how you picture yourself. And one of the things I love about being in the pastorate for these years and having a degree in psych, self-concept is almost impervious to feedback. Is it not? Some people really think they are ugly And they're not talented because somebody imprinted that in their head long ago. And no matter what they do, getting a new thought through them is like getting a breeze through a billiard ball. They just won't change their view. And other people think they're really neat, and God knows why. (laughs) But they really, they're not kidding. It's not lack of self-esteem. They're conceited for no reason. (laughs) And I'll point some out to you later on, but no, I'm kidding. But as <laughs> what he is saying is pride is when you overelevate yourself or you slam yourself. You loathe yourself. That's the flip side of pride. When you punish yourself because you're not perfect, somewhere down inside you think that you could be perfect. And God says, no, you can't. You are a created creature. You are a fallen creature with a disease called sin. You can't repent of being a human being. But when you look at yourself, when you humble yourself, it means you look to others that are greater than you. What does that mean? Everybody has something to teach you. And you are here serving the daughters and the sons of the king himself. You don't hate yourself. You don't elevate yourself. You forget yourself. Last night was so fun. We're connecting together. Uh, TJ's connecting with something called the Crump Zone. We were down at a Crenshaw Christian Center, a large African-American congregation. And, you know, crumping is dancing, kind of like break dancing. And they asked me to go down and, and bust a few moves with them. And uh, no, I'm kidding. No, did not do it. But it was so fun to be down there and to be sharing with them. And then to come back up here, and we were with Young Knock, the small group dinner we had for the leaders, the large Korean congregation and Faithful Central and other large African-American and our leaders. And all these people saying, wow, as you reconnect, why, what, 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 why are you doing that? Well, humbleness is saying they have things to teach us. And we have things to teach them. But remember, he said, be very careful because this is not a level playing field. Humbleness, Frank Crane says, the wish to be great, but the dread of being called great. It's the wish to help, but the fear of receiving thanks. It's trying to be good, but the blush from being caught at it, unquote. Humbleness means that you do things... You, let, you need, do need to let people thank you. I have a hard time in the ministry receiving. It's harder to let people love you than it is for you to love others. And sometimes they're just trying to offer a gift and you don't. no, no, no thanks, I don't deserve it. And they go, okay. <laughs> you need to let them receive the thanks. But humbleness is being able to say, way to go. And having the joy of seeing them win. I have two brothers, friends in Christ, both of them Hall of Famers. One in the NBA and one in the NFL. And I can tell you, even with having those championship rings, you know what they long toward the most for? To be a successful coach. Because it's much harder to win through somebody else than it is through your own talent. And he's talking about being a spiritual coach here, of having others win and you going, yes, because of my input into that. But not only that, he says it's a spiritual battle. Look at verse six Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your worries or anxieties on him because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves. Wake up like a roaring lion. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Humbleness. The stunning lack of humility in the leadership of the American church today is unbelievable and frightening. No, I'm not saying that of everybody. There are some men and women that God has placed in positions of leadership in the church that are truly humble servants of Christ. But we have so bought in Americana that you promote yourself and brag about how neat you are, and then you can build a ministry, and somehow God will use that, and it's a deck of cards. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 is going to be burned up. But when when God uses you, rather than telling the world how neat you are, Let God tell you whether you're in need or not. But be very careful because resist the devil. Now I believe there is a literal Satan. Satan means the accuser. I think there is a being. Now I think he either gets too much play or too little play. Either people are obsessed with Satan and the devil and all the demons all around. Everything they sign, demons in their tossed salad and all sorts of things. Or they say, well there's no devil, it's just Humanity. And both of them are wrong. He said he's a lion. Now he's a lion on a leash. God only lets him go so far. See that tragic story of that woman in the zoo a few summers back that went over to pet that cute little lion? She put her hand through to rub it behind the ear because it looked like a big kitty cat. It grabbed her and it ripped her arm off in front of everybody's horrified eyes. You don't stick your hand in a lion cage. And you don't walk through the Serengeti putting up your pup tent, roasting marshmallows for s'mores that night without keeping your head up about those lions. You and I don't walk into this city and be unaware of how Satan works. Sometimes he will come against you in all sorts of ways. Now, again, some of us are so obsessed with demons and we're always trying to cast the devil out. I remember I I went out on many a date in high school where they tried to cast demons out of me. I remember that. But, but, very, but do not kid yourself, it is very true. And how does he get at it? There's an old story of the devil one time was having hard cash flow and hard times. This is from the 1700s and he sold his weapons. And the preacher came in and he saw in the corner, he saw there was the whip of Satan. And with it you could hit anybody and turn their anger into rage and control them. He saw over here were the arrows of fear. You could pull those back and shoot them in anybody's heart, and they would be terrified and go running away. And over here was the lasso of addiction, and if you put it around them, the bottle or any kind of drugs, you could pull them and pull them out of the game. And the devil looked. This was, the pastor saw this was a 1,000, 1,000. And then he saw something over in the corner, and he said, what's that? And Satan said, that one's not for sale. And he said, why? He said, because I could never get along without that one. It was the wedge of discouragement. Satan's biggest lie, and Jesus calls him in John, the liar and the father of all lies. There is no truth in him. is when he says, you might as well give up. God doesn't love you. You blew it. You couldn't know that. You might as well quit. You ought to just live for yourself. That's a lie. And it's the discouragement to say no. But here Peter's saying, bump and run. You engage him, don't obsess about him, and then you get moving on and loving others. When Satan this week comes to you, flee the temptation. But when you feel this temptation to say something mean, or you lust after something or someone who is not yours, or you want to just live for the almighty dollar and not share with others, and you hear that voice, say, Satan, buzz off. Come back tomorrow. And then you start filling your minds with the words of God and of love. And it's remarkable. When you're tempted, the last thing you want to say is Jesus. Because you know what he wants. And so he tells him here to continue on. Now, he says when you humble yourself, resist him. Your brothers and sisters are going through the same suffering. You know, we have a team this morning. Well, right now it's 8 at night over in Cairo. And they've been meeting with uh, our fellow Presbyterians over there in the heart of Cairo under tough Sharia law, and when they can preach Jesus, when other um, under Islamic law, you can't preach. But if someone asks you about your faith, and they're seeing these dreams about Jesus, and they're asking all these th- wild number of people, and we found this over in communist China as well. And what I think we suffer here in LA, and you do suffer. I mean, you don't get invited to all the parties. <laughs> people say send you mean emails. These people are dying, not symbolically, actually. And Peter's saying, you know those trials you're going through? Your brothers and sisters are going through stuff just like you. It's not weird. And therefore continue to love each other. And then he says, finally you resist him and God himself will restore you. Let's read verses uh, 12 through 14 and finish this up. His... Always read the superscription, the beginning of the epistles as well as the ending. Because this is a real letter. Somebody didn't make this up. And as Peter's writing this from Rome and sending it about the year 60 AD, So let's read this together. Through Silvanus, whom I consider a faithful brother, I have written this short letter to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Your sister church in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends your greetings And so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Your fellow church in Babylon, he's in Rome. You think people are decadent in L.A., and they are. (laughs) You should have seen Rome in the first century. Every crime of alcohol and narcotica that day, every kind of sexual perversion, living for just wealth, unbelievable. Caligula gave the most expensive party in history. It was well over $50 million by today. They dined on peacock tongues brought from North Africa. There was a petty little man sitting on a throne in this time by the name of Nero who said, I am God and you will worship me. And Peter says, the church in Babylon says, hey. (laughs) What does he mean? He means it's unstoppable. And in the middle of this, even though Peter will be crucified, and others are already dying, and Paul will be beheaded, he won't be crucified as a Roman citizen, that he says this city will change. Uh, It's passing away, and the new Jerusalem will come someday. And for over a thousand years, the greatest city in the world for Christ was Rome. Don't tell me L.A. can't change. Don't tell me the myth of inevitability that Los Angeles will always be the way Los Angeles is. As we connect with these other churches, as you love in your small group and you come here to worship, as we connect together and resource other ministries, things will change. Amen? Amen? And you and I, all we have to do is be faithful about our little plot. Isn't this great? My son Mark greets you. Greet each other with a kiss. Remember John Mark? John Mark is the one who in the end of the Gospel of Mark, when it says Jesus was arrested and a young man was in the garden and they grabbed him and he went running naked into the night and the story goes on you go, what is with that? That's John Mark giving his signature. He had followed Jesus. They met, maybe the upper room was John Mark's house. We don't know for sure. We know his mother's house became a meeting place in Jerusalem. And he followed Jesus. When the Roman guards went for him, they grabbed his coat. They said he quit his and dropped his linen, and he was out of there. <laughs> the next time he goes on a tour with Paul, he misses his mother or he gets a disease we don't know. But he deserted Paul and went back home. He's in the habit of running. And now we will know that Paul, who would not go with John Mark, and he walked away from Barnabas because he says, in the clutch, this guy bails on you. And when Paul is on death row, he asks for three people, Timothy and John Mark, as well as Luke. In the clutch, he became that. Who taught John Mark to come back? Peter did. And why would Peter... Have an interest in a young man who, when he was needed, walked away? Because it was Peter's life. And Peter, therefore, took John Mark, my son. When we belong to God, and you are his daughter and his son, and you can call him Abba, Father by the Spirit, how it changes you. When I think of the Dermody girls and the lotto they won and getting... These two as parents, and the lotto they won in getting these three girls. And who they are now just a year later, the difference that they have. They're growing to be obnoxious preacher's kids, just like uh, all of us in that way. (laughs) And the joy and the sweetness that they have. Because why? Because they have a mom and dad that loves them. God loves you like that. Like I've said before, God loves you so much. He's so proud of you. Not your sin. If God has a refrigerator, your picture is on it. And he talks about you and that he loves you. And what he asks you and I to do is to respond in kind. Are you a good leader? Even if nobody's following, are you leaving a mark and that you know how to be a servant? You don't need to build yourself up. You find a joy and you don't need to put yourself down, but in building others up. Are you knowing spiritual warfare? Yeah, a lot of us have emotional and psychological things and you need psychologists and medication to help and a lot of times it's, it's upbringing. But there's a real spiritual war out there. Do you know that voice? And do you know how to send Christ against him? You don't deal with him, you send, like they say, when Satan knocks on the door, let Jesus answer. And do you know how to conquer this city, this city, L.A.? We change this city, you change this culture. You change this culture. You literally change the world. This is a tough tour of duty, but it's a great one. God resists the proud, but oh, he gives grace to the humble. Let's bend our knee. Let's pray, shall we? Father, I thank you that you have loved us with a love that is beyond anything that we could comprehend. And God, I thank you that you have called us to this city, Lord, or wherever we are from, whether we are visiting, to be able, Lord, to look to you in the midst of trials and sufferings. Lord, we pray for your church around the world, over 2.5 billion people, some of them paying for it all by following you. You have given them a compliment of suffering for you. Lord, I pray for us that, Lord, as we come and that we share with you, that, God, that we would be able to take the Holy Spirit Oh, Spirit of God, come and fill us. May we speak every language to every culture, Lord, the language of love, the language of hope because of what you have done. So, Lord, we come before you now with our tithes and our offerings. And we thank you, Lord, for the way that you have loved us. So whether, Lord, we are in whatever station in life, whatever stage, we can't wait till you come back, Lord. One thing we would ask, Maranatha send him back soon. For his sake we pray, amen.